Stand clear. 100% wild podcast. So for all you listeners, hello and welcome to definitely not your favorite outdoor podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drury Outdoors 100% Wild Podcast. This is episode number 281, marching on our way to 300. And we're powered by DeerCast. Yes, sir. You're Tim Chelswick. You are Matt Drury. And today we got a full house. (laughs) So first of all, we have Mark and Terry both on via Zoom. And those guys, uh, I don't know that we've ever had them both on the pod. It's been a while anyway since we've had them both on the podcast. It's crossing the streams and Ghostbusters. Yeah, so why why don't you introduce everybody and we'll get, we got a full house, but we got a lot of info we got to get on here today. Yeah, Terry, good morning. How are you? Good morning, everybody. How we doing? We're doing good. Good. We're closer to deer season. That's why we're doing good. (laughs) <laughs> Man of many words. Terry's <laughs> checking in from from the war room there, and then we got Mr. Mark Drury. Mark, good morning. Good morning, guys. How are we doing this morning? We're good. We're good. Before we before good. we introduce good. our next guest, did you get any rain? No, bad subject. Uh, <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> hold, hold on. Brutal. You suck, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for bringing that back up. And okay, so our next guest is Dr. Bronson Strickland, and he is a professor of wildlife at Mississippi State University. He's the co-director of the Deer, Eco- Deer Ecology and Management Lab at Mississippi State University. He's also the host of Deer, the Deer University podcast. He received his bachelor's degree in forest resources from the University of Georgia, master's degree in range and wildlife management from Texas A&M University, and his PhD in wildlife ecology from Mississippi State University. This is a house of learned doctors. Something that we all know, all three of these schools, total party schools. Yeah. <laughs> Bronson, welcome to the show, man. It may have been been a party for some people. It wasn't a party for yeah, me. Where was the party at? Not when you're racking up a pedigree like that. <laughs> That's right. I worked too much. That's yeah, right. I was working in the deer pens all this time, so I didn't have time to do that. But thank you very much uh, for the invitation. Pleasure to be here. Meet you all. And uh, I'm sorry, Mark, but we've had a, uh, too much rain here in Mississippi. So it's literally raining right now. So we could. I would love to shift some of it north your way. <laughs> I would take every drop, my friend, every drop. Yeah. Well, we, we wanted to we wanted to convene this this meeting of the minds to talk about what 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 is the the best the, our best understanding of what really makes whitetails move because we know that what makes them move are the things that give hunters the opportunity at encountering them to potentially have a shot. Well, we think we know what makes them move, but I think, you know, what where uh, Bronson comes in, he actually has some science behind it and research behind science. it. And um, so what I feel like will be interesting here is to see, you know, uh, you know, 90 combined years of observed movement from Mark and Terry and what they've kind of uh, noticed through time and through trail camera observation and then research from Bronson and his crew and what you know their studies have shown and kind of maybe meet in the middle and see how these things can intertwine or how you can take um, kind of the the research side of it and dumb it down and into layman's terms <laughs> for the rest of us and yeah. if there's any correlation uh, between what Mark and Terry and, and I think what your probably your average deer hunter notices out there and in, in the wild versus sure. uh, this research that's taking place. 
And, and, and maybe that's a great place to start is the research, because that's how we started having this conversation internally. I think back around 2009, Bronson, you and, and a couple other colleagues published some research about deer movement. So maybe that's a decent place to, to start and kind of talk to people just kind of basics of what that how that study was set up and what you concluded from that. Sure thing. Um, yeah, so first of all, I want to start by saying I, I'm a hunter. Um, I am enamored with deer just as, as much as anyone else. And that's one of the, the reasons I got into to wildlife biology and to deer management and went on to graduate school and PhD, et cetera, is because that's what I really want to study, talk about, think about every day. So I'm eaten up with, with deer biology and management. And uh, another thing is we, we discuss it, my, uh, my colleague and friend and co-director of the MSU Deer Lab, Steve Damaris, uh, we notice the exact same things that hunters see. And I cannot tell you how many backroom, sometimes heated discussions with other scientists, with uh, wildlife managers, et cetera, that are professionals. And we make these claims from our data. We're just reporting what our data show. And nicely put, our friends call BS. <laughs> I, I know what I see and I don't believe your results. And so that goes back and forth and back and forth. Um, and, and I'll also say that <clears throat> we, like me and Steve, we see these phenomenon as, as well. And, and we call it magic day. I mean, we've all hunted enough collectively. And it's like, why in the world did we hunt a, a strategic place and saw no deer or very few deer and the next day, you know, you see 10, 20, 30. Um, there, there can be something going on there, but, but what is, um, what I think is important to mention here, the, these aren't just our findings at the MSU deer lab. These are findings from, uh, Texas A&M Kingsville, Auburn university, university of Georgia. It just goes on and on, even up North with, with Penn state and Dwayne Diefenbach's stuff, um, at the scale that we look at using the tools that we have and i think that's kind of where the conversation should maybe go is i think we may be looking at the question with different tools and at a different scale but the way our studies and this is using when when i was an, an undergraduate i got i was very fortunate to be a technician and i was in south texas and i was working with mick hellickson and uh, I was the guy standing in the back of the truck when we had VHF collars on deer. And you had to get out there and use a compass and an antenna and wave it around and get a location and a bearing. And uh, so I was part of studies back then. And now here at Mississippi State, when we have this more sophisticated technology with a GPS collar. Yeah. And this GPS collar is on them for one to two years, if you're lucky, and collecting a location every 15 minutes so every 15 minutes we know exactly satellites are triangulating where that buck is at and we know where they're at um and and so when when you look at all these studies and you put them together the same signal keeps coming up based on the tools that we have and the scale that we look at the problem and that simply is we see big differences in the biology of the animal and how that affects their movement rate over time. And it's stuff you already know because you hunt, it's stuff I know because I hunt, it's stuff we know because we're deer biologists. 
And, and those big picture things are they're going to move less during the summer. And then as you start moving into the pre-rut, rut, post-rut, you'll just see this incremental increase in movement. Like in Mississippi, for example, before the rut, a, a buck is going to move about 4,000 yards a day. When you get all the way to the peak of the rut, it's going to move between 7,000 and 8,000 yards a day. And then you're going to get into the post-rut, it's going to go back down to 5,000. We also know time and time again that movement is centered around sunup and sunset. And it might be 30 minutes before or after, it might be an hour before, but when you see those big shifts, those big peaks, is that it's always centered around sunup and sundown. Absolutely bucks are individuals. So you have individual behavior of a buck. Some of them just move more than others. And then you have differences within a buck from day to day. Some of them may move twice as much tomorrow than they moved yesterday. And that's something we can't, can't explain. Um, we also know that bucks are going to move every day. And so some of the stuff we hear over the years are a buck is completely shut down or, or bucks or deer aren't moving. That, that's just not true. Uh, a, a buck, a deer, a doe, they have got to eat every single day. They got to get on their feet. They got to fill their rumen up at least twice a day. So we know they're going to move. So that's kind of the way we've been looking at it. And so we're looking at a scale. Now let's get to stuff like weather. So now let's start looking at that day-to-day -day stuff. What caused magic day and, and, and what might be related to that? And so we're typically looking at a movement rate. How much did the buck move today versus tomorrow versus a week from now? And the single best signals we have are always relative to sunup, sundown, and relation to the rut. And so as we get closer and closer to the rut, they start moving more and more. We have very, very weak signals, if any signal at all, about a weather front coming in or a change in precipitation. And when we do find a statistical difference, and we have in some of these, we're running the, the we throw the kitchen sink at it. You know, we, again, we're deer hunters. We're looking for that special, you know, what is it that makes it make makes a move today? And we'll find a difference statistically, but it might say something like, okay, they moved an additional 50 yards hmm. on a particular day. So when you add 50 to 7,000, it's not enough to motivate me to hunt a particular day or not, because they're going to move 7,000 yards. Another 50 is kind of trivial, so drop in the bucket. So that's the way we look at this, is we've got every 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever you've set your GPS collar, how you've calibrated it, mm -hmm. point A, point B, point C, et cetera, and we know they're moving. So now the way I try to reconcile this as a hunter and knowing what I've seen on these days is we know the distance that they moved. We know how far they moved. We know their movement rate, rate just being expressed as distance per hour or per day or stuff like that. We're, we, but we don't know where they move relative to someone seeing it or not. Yeah. And that's a very subtle difference, but I think it's a really big difference. So in other words, my data may show that the deer did not move much today or very little. 
but that buck may have literally just moved 100 yards or 200 yards and moved into an opening, into a food plot or something like that, and someone see it and record it as the deer moving today. But my data aren't really showing that the deer are moving because they didn't move a very far distance to trigger a signal of a big change in movement rates. And I really think it, it kind of comes down to that. I, I was going to say, I think I've that's been talking a, big a lot, so I'll, I'll pass it off here. I, I think that's the big point to make. I look forward to hearing Mark and Terry's opinions here. Before, just to backtrack a little bit, this study did it take place, if I if I recall right, in Oklahoma over a what was it a two year period or was it a longer period? It, it was, I would say, not quite two years, more like 18 months, but it was summer, winter, in, including uh, deer season, hunting season. And, and then also I'm including a study we're, we're still working on right now in Mississippi. And, and this covered about 35, 40 deer. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, one was, I think, less than 30. I think it may have been only about 15 bucks. And the current study we're wrapping up now has about 50 bucks and okay. all of them, most of them three and a half and older, but a few of them are two and a half. Okay. Mark, Terry, uh, any, anybody want to jump in here and, and kind of get things rolling with any questions? Sure. Go ahead, Terry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll let you start. No, I, I appreciate you coming on today, Bronson, very much so. And uh, it's interesting since you published your study, I can't tell you how many times a podcast host or someone has asked me, hey, I heard weather has no effect on, on deer movement. And, um, and and the first time I got asked that question, I was in the middle of a podcast or perhaps an article, and they said there's a new study out that said weather doesn't affect them. And and I said, oh, you, you have to be kidding me, right? And he said, uh, no, that's the, the study coming out. And I said, that, that's very interesting because I, I, I disagree with that wholly. But after hearing your, your explanation there, I do agree with virtually everything you said. They do move X amount of distance. But to us, the timing is very important as to when they move and whether they expose themselves during daylight and whether they come out of cover and, and actually head to feed a little bit early. Um, I'm Terry and I are, are still doing our study. It's been going on for about 35, 40 years. And we're lucky because we're, we're two that get to sit every single day of the season. Um, we're lucky because we have a lot of trail cameras out there as well. So we get to observe deer movement in the wild and have for the past three decades for about four months out of the year. So we, we don't miss a day, whether it's uh, uh, you know a really hot day, a cold day, uh, a windy day, a calm day, a, a rainy day, a dry day, a snowy day, like we sit there through all of it, high pressure, low pressure. So we've been lucky to have a you know a, a 30 year study on whitetails as, as to what makes them move in terms of to a, a food source a little bit earlier or perhaps hang out a little bit later of a morning. Uh, before they head back to bed or perhaps a little bit more during the rut. So I do agree with distance, um, but I, I'm, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on time of day as far as what is exposed during daylight. Are there certain triggers that you see where a little bit more daylight was exposed that, than other days? And, I, and I'll, I'll uh, send it off to Terry there to let him uh, say his thoughts. Well, th this is a, a lot to digest, and I, too, welcome Bronson here on the podcast. I, I appreciate his all of his input here because some of this is really eye-opening. I love hearing the data and, and uh, all the data that they're collecting 
So it's interesting and intriguing to us as whitetail hunters. Um, you know, the, and I guess Mark kind of summed it up pretty well there in the fact that we've been studying them for 35, 40 years, 50 in my case. Uh, and, and, you know, they do move up in and around sun up, sun down. Uh, but boy, the weather and precept has just been so instrumental as far as we're concerned, along with many, many other items, their departure from average, whether it be wind speed or temperature departure from average, barometric pressure, the dips, you know, the, the peaks and the, and the valleys of those, of the barometer. We've, we've really tried to hone this down and summarize, we've got about 13 different influencers that they, they that we call it that went into an algorithm to predict that that deer movement strictly during daylight hours, not necessarily uh, at dark. But as hunter, we wanted to know why they were moving during daylight, and we collected our data, you know, up here upstairs, trying to formulate why they were moving during certain times of the day and when they were moving, when that activity was higher. Something you touched on was the fact that your signal you couldn't acquire a signal because they didn't move very far and we would liken that to early season late season when they're betting extremely extremely close to food plots i've got a food plot now with several cameras around it and we're seeing a group of uh 10 or 12 bucks come onto that food plot every day but they're moving literally uh maybe 100 to 150 yards they're just not going very far and they have been doing that for uh almost a month so those periods early season and late season when it's really really cold they're trying to conserve that energy they may have a food food uh, source very very close they're going to bed real close and we're really really tuned in with that for hunters so that they don't run out the deer that they're hunting and they're very careful about getting in and out of there but um i really you know i agree with everything you say as well bronson i, I really do i think it's intriguing um, where, let me ask you this. Were all of those deer, were they captive or were they all free ranging? They were they're all free ranging. So that they, they're all wild deer and they're exposed to hunting. Okay. All right. Um, and maybe we, we may be a little more analytical and we were trying to get it down to the minute, down to the hour, down to the second as to when they were moving and, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't disagree with anything you say. I, I really don't. I, I would love to be a part of that study and, and learn more. I, I really think it's intriguing. I would love to somehow marry these two, the algorithm that we've created and, and the 13 influencers that we're using, along with the data that you have and see if we can't take it one step further. I, I think there's something there. I just I can't put my finger on it just yet as far as how we could how we could couple those two findings and uh, somehow hone that down even a little closer. I, to me, it seems like the interesting aspect of it would be, you know, we're trying to get, when we plan our plots, you, your guys' entire theory around food plots is kind of making the deer come to you, but being close enough to their bedding or cl close to an area where they're going to get to you before, you know, before sunset, or you're going to catch them before they go back to bed in the morning. And so to me, it seems like if his study is, is more honed in on the big movement, big picture, we're kind of, it's kind of a, a micro experiment in our instance where we're trying to 
to get a finite, you know, hey, they're only going to move 100, 200 yards or whatever it is. Because I think about it just in general, my setups, it's and I only know this based on listening to you, you guys for so long, but we're trying to plant food plots as close to their bedding as yeah. possible so that we might get lucky and they might come out right before dark, you know, and give us an opportunity. So I'm just wondering if and you know, the majority of the season, like you're saying, early season, late season, if they're just that that would fly under the radar of a study like uh, what Bronson's talking about because they're looking at such a big picture hey 5000 yards or 7000 7, yards i mean we're trying to get 200 yards or 300 yards you, you know so i wonder if that is the difference Br Bronson what are your thoughts after listening to Mark and Terry and and then kind of putting it back to your study well, well, first of all, Terry, uh, I think the bottom line is the way we got to get to the bottom of this is I, I got to come spend a few weeks with y'all in Iowa during deer season with a clipboard and a pencil. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. And, and we got to put some GPS collars on some bucks up there on, on your farms. But that's the tough part. <laughs> um, one thing Matt said, I think is really important. I hear over and over and over again. I'll give you my response, and I think it resonates very well from, from what you're saying is I'll often hear that uh, the, the deer are slash bucks, they're too pressured, and they're just, quote, only nocturnal. The only photos I get from them are at night. And from what the data tell us, and then from intuition as well, my response has always been the buck is not totally nocturnal. The reason you're only getting photos of the buck at night is most likely because the food plot is too far away from cover. And by the time the buck travels from wherever this cover is, 500 yards without, it is arriving at the destination after sundown. So that's management right there. That's I mean, the that's the same answer I give all the time, exact same answer. You're just yeah. not, you're just not where he's moving during daylight. You know, exactly. Especially, especially those pictures that are from 11 p.m. to 3, 3 a.m., you're probably quite distant from his, his bed, perhaps. So it's really about finding where that buck beds and then getting that little bit of edge. Is he going to move this day or is he not from that bed into a place that I can get between where he's at and where he's going? I mean, that's what it comes down to. They're either moving to food or they're moving back to bed or they're moving because of a rut tendency, you know, once we get closer into that period. So I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Did your, did your study look at time of day i know you talked about sun up and sunset but did you look at like um perhaps just a little bit of an edge 30 minutes in the afternoon or 30 minutes in the morning because that's really what it comes down to is an additional 15 to 30 minutes of daylight activity as opposed to barely getting there right after dark or perhaps moving back before you know right at sunrise or just before sunrise i should say uh, uh i think mark that would be a case where if we probably looked at an individual buck and we had our collars calibrated to say every five minutes versus 15 minutes, I, I think we would pick that up. Okay. Uh, one thing is that because we're, and here's the whole deal, the logistics of it, you know, we would love to have a location every 30 seconds, but it's really, you're dropping, you know, two to $3,000 for that collar and that's just the collar, not the data uh, subscription and, and putting it out there. So we try to get the longevity of the collar. You know, we're shooting to get a year or two out of it. So it's battery life. Every time you get a location, you're eating up the battery. Um, 
So the, the, the subtlety of um, that 15 minutes or 10 minutes of coming out a little bit early or a little later and being seen, it kind of gets swamped over. I believe when you, when you take the average of 60 different bucks yeah. and some of them moved a little early, some of them a little later, little individual differences, some of them may feel hunting pressure more than others. Some are young and naive, some are mature. So that, that I think that's one of the issues there too, uh, is the, the subtleties of if you bow hunt, you know, 10 minutes matters. Sure. And, and sometimes we can't pick that up. To me, that explains a lot. You know, I think because just based on your description, I can kind of see where you, you would come to that conclusion. And hopefully you can see where we come to ours and that weather matters greatly in terms of daylight activity, which is what we're, we're really trying to predict and, and look at. So I, I kind of get it now that, I, now that I hear your description, but I've never heard it this way. Most people just come at us and go, weather has zero effect on them. And, and to that, I, I, I have plenty of, you know, retort to that. So um, I, I kind of get it now that, now that you just described it that way. Well, it, it, one thing we we recently well, let me talk, um, Mark, uh, address something you said a moment ago regarding during daylight hours. One thing we found from the Oklahoma study that I thought was really fascinating is it, it takes about three days. That was kind of the sweet spot we found to where there were noticeable, tangible differences in deer behavior after about three days of human sights, sense, noise, et cetera, being out there. Uh, deer change. But what was fascinating to a deer dork like me anyway, is that it, it wasn't over a 12 hour, 24 hour period, the, the, that they were moving or not, it was kind of how they moved. And so we, we have this really complicated term in, in movement ecology called tortuosity, a more tortuous path. And so they would end up moving a very similar distance after hunting pressure, but they would do it differently. So they would take more left turns, more right turns. They, they would cover a similar amount of distance, but instead of it being a very exposed, linear, straightaway path where they could be seen, they're zigzagging through the landscape because they know hunters are out there. So that, that was something we documented that I, that I thought was pretty cool as well. Another thing we've started looking at again, that just fascinated me from a hunting perspective is, uh, and, and I can't say it would be this way in, in Iowa, but I, I know in Mississippi, and we got a very different landscape. We have a very cover heavy landscape, and that's not the case in a lot of places in the Midwest. But daily, a buck is, is spending, we, we talk about an annual home range and a seasonal home range, and, and here it's pretty much universally true. It's always gonna be about a thousand acres. Some places or some time of year, it may be 500. It's about 1,000 acres. Um, but when you look at it on a daily scale, it's pretty interesting. So let me throw that out there as a question. O on average, how much area do you think a buck is covering even during the pre-rut, rut, post-rut on a daily scale? To me, I feel like home ranges vary based on the animal it's similar to what you were saying earlier some bucks move a lot some don't move very much and we've actually seen antler quality kind of follow that you know those bucks that move so much the previous year that you see every day no matter where you're sitting he generally doesn't have the growth that that buck that you barely saw or barely got any pictures of yet you felt like he was on your place all the time to me 
there's bucks that are really active within the breeding and there are other bucks that aren't nearly as active within the breeding and and i i swear you can see it in their capes you can see it in their faces they get a lot more uh, war torn from fighting and encountering other deer and their racks are almost always that bully eight you know and then you got that clean beautiful 10 point with kickers and trash and he has zero scars he's perfect shape there's nothing on his body whatsoever and to me it's just a matter of whether he they kept themselves in in good health or not based on how much they move but when it comes down to the rut i've seen days where they take big you know uh trips and they'll cover three or four square miles but if i had to answer your question in general terms they will go from roughly a square mile to a couple square miles it would be my answer to your question in 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 a general term you know trying to cover all bucks but it varies greatly on personality which is why i started my it absolutely does. And we, <clears throat> we've kind of characterized that with some of our studies too, and we call it buck personality. And some of them shift completely pre-rut yeah. during the rut. They will literally, and we've got a buck that's real popular on social media. This isn't related to the, the rut, but that rascal crosses the Mississippi River twice a year. Awesome. He, he, he spends hunting season in Mississippi and he goes to Louisiana during the summer. Um, <laughs> so, <clears throat> that's awesome. it, it, yeah, it, it's really amazing. But believe it or not, when you condense it all down to the average, and there's always exceptions, some do more, some do, but every single day, a buck's home range is about 200 acres. Mm-hmm. Whether it's in the pre-rut, peak of the rut, post-rut, it's about 200 acres. But here's what changes, I think is fascinating, during the rut, is when you have the uh, before the rut, not the, not the pre-rut, but before rutting activity, that that 200 acres from day to day, if I can use my hands here, those little daily home ranges kind of overlap. Most of the area overlaps. Then when you start moving into the rut, they still utilize 200 acres per day, but he has picked up and moved a thousand yards and he's using two, uh, 200 acres over here. And then the next day it's 200 acres over here. And so they go to these different focal areas most likely based on food and then during the rut, where are those, where are the does at? He's looking for estrus does. But that was kind of um, encouraging, I guess, for me as a hunter is sometimes I just think every single day they're using a thousand acres, they're not. Every I, single I, day they're using I, a couple hundred. I was speaking in terms of what is the overall home range, you know, yeah. and I would say it varies from a square mile to, to two square miles based on what time of the year it is, you know. Absolutely. Any individual day, I would have said it might have been a little smaller than that Mm -hmm. with a lot of our bucks up here, you know, because our cover is so broken up and, you know, so cover is fairly limited. There's a lot of open spaces that they just don't use until, you know, after dark. I would say it might be a little bit smaller than that yet on a daily basis. That that would be my prediction as well. Yeah, I I would say it might be 80 acres or 100 acres on on some of these bucks that just don't move very much for sure. Terry, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. I, I was curious, Bronson, if there's a difference in subspecies, meaning, you know, I don't know, how many are there total, 20 some different subspecies? I was wondering if there was a difference in what you would see in Minnesota and Wisconsin versus what you would see in Texas and Georgia. Yeah, it, the whole subspecies thing, that's uh, that's one of those debated thing at, things at scientific conferences. Uh, If you go back to one of our very first deer books, there was over 30 
different subspecies. And, and what we've learned is that was all based on morphology, meaning how they look and how they look is based on their environment and their environment is based on how much food they have to eat. So you can take so many of those little island deer that were called a subspecies, give them really good nutrition and they look like a mainland deer. So that's really kind of fizzled and dissolved. So we really only think of about three or four maybe subspecies now. I, I, I personally, Terry, I, I don't think it's gonna have anything to do with the subspecies or genetic classification. I think it's gonna be their environment and how their resources, meaning food and cover is distributed. I think you could go from Texas to Minnesota and you would see the exact same behavior if the distribution of food and cover was the same. I, I don't, that's just my hunch. But I don't think there would be any difference. That's interesting because Terry and I talk about it all the time and we wonder whether it's when the general firearm season hits in terms of some of our deer movement up here because my Missouri farms are about geographically 35 miles as the crow flies from my Iowa farms. So we get to observe both herds each and every year and Terry's about uh, probably 150 miles from me. Um, but the Missouri bucks and, and deer in general they're smaller bodied. They move so much more, but the landscape is essentially the same. There's not a lot of difference in that 35 miles. Uh, the soil types are, are similar. Uh, the, the cover is very similar, but the rifle season down there occurs in mid-November annually and has for many, many decades, as you know. Here in Iowa, it does not occur until December, um, any firearms whatsoever. But these Iowa deer, they don't move very far. They're much bigger. They're much uh bulkier, beefier, and they just don't seem to move nearly as much as those Missouri deer. It's amazing to us. We have a about a, I don't know, a 5,000 acre block down there in Missouri where we all keep notes and communicate with each other, just uh, like-minded neighbors. And it is amazing how far those bucks will travel as they approach the rut down in Missouri, as opposed to our block up here where we also communicate amongst each other, different group of guys. And we just seldom see a lot of bucks with that type of movement. I would love for you guys to come and do a study up here because it, it intrigues myself and Terry. And he sees different patterns in Illinois where he hunts than he does there on his Missouri stuff. And they're probably, what, uh, 250 miles apart, I would think, Terry. But we've seen drastic differences in movement just, just as close as 35 miles away. It's, it, it intrigues wow. us each year. Uh, if I may add to that, you know, I agree with that wholeheartedly. We thought the Missouri deer moved a lot until we started hunting Illinois with regularity and some of those big open blocks. You know, there's some huge destination feed fields over there, huge alfalfa fields. They travel miles over there. And it's amazing to us. We may get a picture of them in the morning, you know, on 1500 acres. They may be on one end in the morning and then on another end in the evening. And it's it's amazing to us how far they travel over there. And then you may get an email from somebody that said two and a half or three miles away that said, yeah, I got pictures of that same deer. You know, it's pretty incredible how far they move and they are a little bigger. They're a little beefier. I don't, I don't understand the uh, actual makeup of the of the particular animal because they're very similar to Iowa in the fact that they're they're huge bodies, but they're longer. They seem to be longer than the Missouri deer. I mean, it's it's really, all of this is from observation, so we don't have any data to back it up, but uh, we see it with our cameras and we see it you know, with the naked eye as well. And we're not saying it's daylight big distance. We're just Correct. saying they are in point A and point B sometime, and most of it I think is at night because they're not walking during the daylight or they'd all be dead, right? So <laughs> um, 
it, it's, it's, I think, a lot of travel at night. It, it was amazing to me, you know. And then the next deer you hunt, he doesn't hunt move that far. I would love for you to come up and observe it, observe it in, in response to your earlier uh, tongue-in-cheek question. I would love for you to come up here and, and watch what we're seeing uh, on a daily basis. I think you would be intrigued, or I'd love to open up my computer uh, to show you all the pictures we've taken, or Terry's computer. I mean, we look at, I look at about a million and a half to two million trail photos annually, and I've been doing that since probably 08 or 09. So we've got a lot of data, and I've kept every rack buck picture, generally nighttime or, or daytime. There, there's a lot of data in this computer. I know that much. I call it the, the brainchild of the whole operation, and that's, that's how we kill them, and that's what we've learned about general movement is just you know studying we go backwards historically from a weather perspective and look at overall daylight days oh my goodness and this is when we were first developing the algorithm I'm, I'm going back six seven eight years ago and we said holy cow every camera i have i got 30 cameras i got daylight bucks every single one in the middle of october traditionally the lull if you will what occurred and then we could go backwards on historical weather data and look at what made that day the magical day to your point you know and then we started putting all the pieces together and comparing notes and looking and trying to prove or disprove what we uh, our guts told us and that's how we ultimately came up with with the algorithm you know we've never shared that algorithm algorithm with anyone but it, it would be intriguing for you to come and look at our basis for each individual influencer if you would sign an nda <laughs> like blindfold him i think i think you would be fascinated with our with our findings through through time if well i may add to that uh bronson i too look at about a million or a million and a half photos every year and these are totally different deer than marker mark's looking at so we're looking at roughly two to three million pictures every single year and a half since 08 or 09 so we do draw conclusions one thing we are doing, we're not looking so much at the broad spectrum of 12 months out of the year because the redneck deer hunter in us wants to know about that sweet spot, literally September through January, that four or five month period. You know, there's a little bit of activity there in March that everybody's concerned with when it comes to shed antlers. But April, May, June, there's a dead period in there that we really kind of get a little bit lazier, a little lackadaisical. And and there's not as much concern about where they are and how much they're moving uh, where you are. You have that data for a, a total 18 month period. So we're more honed in on that four month period when when every redneck deer hunter in America wants to know, hey, I got when can I take off work? How many days and when will they move? That's all they care about. They want to know when they're going to be moving. So we've really tried to hone in on that period, I think, more than any. Uh, I know in July and August there, when, when they got their antlers and they're growing, you know, full velvet, everybody's out trying to get video and pictures and so on and so forth in open fields. But we're really, really concentrating on a pretty small period there, that, that four or five months. And I think we've got into some detail there that, that maybe is, is a little more finite. But I, I'm like, Mark, I would love to have collars on Missouri deer, Iowa deer, Illinois deer, Kansas deer, I would love to collar more states, and I realize the cost effectiveness of all this, but it would sure be intriguing to see the differences and some of the just some of the minutia that we're we're talking about here. Well, I think that would be a really good way to to kind of reconcile the, the stuff we've been talking about is is in your space where you have collected all this data for all these years. And Terry, nobody blames you for not looking at pictures during the springtime. You got you got a turkey hunt. <laughs> sometime and you got to fish sometimes yeah. too so um but i think a great way to reconcile that is going to be 
in the same area at the same time is having GPS collars on bucks so we can look at that type of data, pairing that with your camera data where it's gonna be, this camera represents what a hunter is gonna see. It is gonna be visible to a hunter and seeing how closely they align or maybe they don't align whatsoever. But I think that's gonna give us some insight and in why we've always kind of had this difference between the deer studies and what hunters see and, and know that they've seen over the years. Project. I think that would be fascinating. Can we make it happen? I mean, is it is it possible or is that an impossible dream? It just, I hate to say it, it just takes time and money. Time and money. <laughs> time and money. <laughs> the magical equation to everything. And, and I'm going to donate the time. Y'all will have to help me crowdsource the money. <laughs> what, what type of, well, we can talk about it afterwards. I'd love to know what that cost looks like to actually do a, a study like that, you know? Yeah, it, it's, uh, I, I know people get blown away and trust me, uh, research is, is expensive. And so uh, n not only, you know, just the cost of the collar and the collar all depends on bells and whistles, you know, the mm -hmm. longevity of it. But, you know, you're looking at a minimum of probably $2,000 per collar. Mm -hmm. Well, then you got to come up with a, a way, you got to catch those deer. <laughs> that, that's no that's no easy feat so now you move into what type of trapping you're going to do you know if we were in texas it'd be easy peasy you just get up there with a helicopter and a net gun and it's done in the afternoon catch 30 bucks a day but if you're in a place that has trees it's going to be stuff like uh dart gunning it's almost like bow hunting you're dart gunning individual by individual or using a drop net or a box trap or things like that so and you have to pay for personnel you know you got to pay for bait and and uh, there's some legit, you got to go through your state wildlife agency to get to permitting to do that, which that's typically no problem whatsoever, because they're all about research, managing the resource. But th th there's just some logistics to putting your hands on a deer and putting a collar on them. What happens when the neighbor kills your collared deer? <laughs> it, it stinks, but it's a reality. because. Yeah. That, that's an important data point as well is survival. What proportion of our samples survived, died by coyotes, died by car collision, died by a bullet or an arrow. That's good info. What is the average age of the buck you're, you try to collar or do you care? Do you just any bucks a buck or do you do you try to get a variety of different ages within your studies? Uh, I hate I haven't said it one time today. But I got to say it right now. It depends. It's it's okay. gonna it's gonna depend on the question. So, for example, there might be, uh, Mark. We might want to look at yearling buck dispersal. So, mm -hmm. if we want to look at yearling buck dispersal, we need to catch buck fawns. Uh, but some of the stuff we're talking about here relative to hunting is, you know, I I would set out to try to capture three and a half and greater. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I would think that'd, that'd be, be a tough task to get a you know. A four or five, six-year-old whitetail collared, I would think that'd be tough to catch up to it, to dart it or net it or whatever in, in the Midwest. Like you're saying, I could see Texas. I mean, we've seen it, you know, it's, it's just a much different animal down there, but I would think you would have a hard time finding the deer. I mean, if we could find them, we'd kill them. What you do is you just say like, I'm going to go out squirrel hunting and you just keep talking about squirrel hunting. Is that the And that's the when trick? they show up. Mm -hmm. No, experience. I would think if you chose the correct time of year, like right now, you Summer. know, on a, a pile of analogic supplement gold, if you had the right wind, you could, I don't know how close you have to be to, to, you know, dart them or whatever, but you could, you could catch quite a few right now. I think True. if you were if you're doing it right now. 
Well, uh, a good way to do that might be bachelor groups. So it mm -hmm. might be setting up a rocket net or a drop net somewhere where you know a bachelor group is and maybe shoot the rocket and get three or four of them at one lick might be a way. Yep. Yep, you could do that. What kind yeah. of stress does that put on? Does that, you know, we? I would assume it's very stressful moment for them, but how, how much time passes by by the time you would net them and, you know, then get them collared? Like uh, what kind of period of 10 minutes, 15, 20, half hour? Like what, what kind of period? And, and does that really affect them in general from like an antler growth perspective? If, you know, you're, you're trying not to affect that side of it as well. Yeah, I, I don't think you, you would have any issues at all on the antler growth side of it because that, that little stress period would be such a short interval of time and so acute. Uh, but but to your point, yeah, we, we try to limit this to like 15 minutes is ideal. And it all depends on the measurements that you're taking. We always are going to try to get a flashlight in there and get the age of the buck. Sometimes we're taking a genetic uh, tissue sample. If they're already in hard antler, we're going to pull a tape and measure those antlers and things like that. We're going to give them uh, a little cocktail, a sedation cocktail that settles them down. And so you typically have about a 15 to a 30 minute window and you try to get it done as quick as possible. And then once you're done, we also have a reversal. So another little cocktail you can put in their bloodstream. It counters the effect of the sedation and they, they run off and are good to go. Very good. Hmm. Fascinating. Extremely confused. So uh, oh, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, it's, it's just fascinating. I, I would love to, you know, spend a year with Dr. Bronson, and I'd love for him to come and spend a year with me. I'd love to compare the two worlds, you know, truly blue collar, you know, trying to kill them versus, you know, the scientific side, trying to learn all you can about them. I, I think it's fascinating. I, I could talk to him all day. Well, next time y'all are in West Point, Mississippi, you need to come visit us and we'll give you a tour here. And uh, I, I just waiting on a request to come to the Midwest. <laughs> come on, man. It, it's open. I would love for you to come up here and just sit and observe with us. I think you'd I think you'd find it fascinating. I don't know if it would benefit you in any way, shape or form, but I'd love for you to come up for 10 days, two weeks. You know, you, you pick the time I'm, you can observe anything on any of my farms. I think you'd find it in, enjoyable. That would be a blast. I think Terry touched on it when he said, you know, we're looking at that four month period when we're trying to be laser focused on it. If you think about like your graph of movement over a two year stretch, I would think that there's periods there where, you know, it may look like a very minute, you know, change, mm -hmm. but for us during the hunting season, that's a monumental change. If you were to expand that one month, or that one week or that one day and see the graph really rise or fall in movement. You, you know what I mean? I think I, I really feel like that's the difference in the, in the study versus the boots on the ground, like daily effect of hunting season. Uh, what do you think Bronson? I, I think you hit the nail on the head and, and just circling back to the, you know, we look at it at a, at a macro scale and the devil's in the details with the subtleties. Yeah. And so where we may not get any meaningful signal that they moved 10 minutes earlier and 100 yards this way versus 100 yards that way, that that's the difference in you seeing a deer or not seeing a deer. And, you know, we record it as no change in movement. But if it moves 100 yards to the left versus 100 yards to the right, it's an opportunity for a shot or a kill. Yeah. Yeah. So I, th I think yeah. that's the yeah. difference. Yeah. Or if they move earlier. Yeah. yeah. Certainly. yeah. You know, the, the other 
thing that we haven't talked about is just our general Drury Outdoors team and our, our 30 years, specifically the last 20, Matt, uh, that you've been there. You record all the kills that come in from our, our team, and um, we take about 125 mature bucks a year on average. So in the last 20 years, I mean, we've taken however many deer that is. It's it's, it's a lot. That's uh, <laughs> coming you know, a thousand. What, Incalculable. I mean, figure that out. I mean, we're taking a hundred years, so a thousand in the last ten years, so two thousand. Call it twenty five hundred mature bucks in the last twenty years, and I would bet money. I would bet money, seventy percent plus come on a cold front. Matt, would you agree or disagree with that? You take them all in. Agree, and it's not only a cold front. We talk about this a lot. The around the full moon period, the ten days. You're leading in and then the you know the five day the five days leading in and five days after specifically that 10 day period um the cold front and that that recipe is magic because we can get into a lull uh warm you know warm period uh, a terrible moon but you could rest assured the team is going to catch up once the next full moon comes around and once a cold front hits it'll be a wave of of success for those periods yes Darker moon has been a very big challenge for us. And we're, we're talking about 50 to 60 hunters that are across the country. They're not all just Midwest. I mean, we've got guys in the Northeast, Texas, out West. So that would be another incredible data point for one of your students if they ever wanted to study it. Uh, I mean, it would be incredible to look at each date, what the weather was doing, what the moon was. And I think you'd put together some some pretty cool findings there because we've got 20 years of history of, like I said, 2,000 to 2,500 deer that are probably average age four and a half or five and a half year old getting harvested on film, most with archery equipment. We take probably 70% archery and 30% firearms each year. Yeah. So I, I think you would, I think the, the, we haven't done it, but we kind of know because we see it happen each and every year. But if you actually laid it out in a scientific form, I think it would be fascinating. So, Mark, you're saying that for all those records or mo most of them anyway, you you're going to have the, the date and the time of harvest. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. We would have to do something with that. They're on video. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We would have <laughs> the date so. very easily have the date, the state, the weapon, um, the time we'd have to go back and, and, and gather, but it's all doable because we have it all. And a lot of that is first 30, last 30. I mean, right. you know, to, the majority of it, it's the last 30 minutes mm -hmm. of the, the, the afternoon. But okay. Was, now the, the, the one you'd also see groups of bucks, like, um, you'll catch a day and all of a sudden four giants went down and then you'll go four or five days. Another weather front hits three or four more go down like you'd you'd see collective groups but yet in different parts of the of the country same weather front though so t two things that would make that in my mind uh a little better or more more reliable finding would be so we have the kill which, which means that the deer showed up number one mm -hmm. but but also there was success that you killed it everything went right with the hunt so it would be awesome if we could disentangle that I saw the buck and it was there. So, because that is what's related to the phenomenon of the weather or the front or, or whatever. Yeah. What would also be really, really useful is the days where the hunt took place and you didn't see it. Plenty of So those. we have the, the total amount of effort of hours of stand sitting 
and then the success. So you would really scientifically, you also need to compare, I did hunt and came up zero. You, I hunted and I saw the buck, I hunted and I killed the buck. You could do that part of the study with just Tim and I, the, I went and I saw zero. <laughs> yeah, you went data points, you got data we points. We got all kinds of data points. Give, give you a bunch of goose eggs. <laughs> I, do, I do think it would be interesting that the the two other things you asked for would be much tougher to untangle because we have we don't we didn't keep notes through it but i do think it would be interesting to just lay it out and go wow there's there's you know 2000 harvest or 25 harvest you know as it pertained to weather and moon was there a consistency yeah. you know yeah. well maybe that's something that that's part of the ongoing conversation that we have as we try to find a way to have our hunters our team members do some logging while they're out there which like for critical mass they the, we do have um an idea as, as far as not the the days they went and didn't see anything but the days they went and encountered a deer and didn't kill it we because you know we show all the encounters too so yeah. we would have a little bit of that probably fairly easily for at least you know 15 people or so our um, team members are practically scientists already so this is not a stretch <laughs> yeah, it depends who you're yeah. talking to <laughs> matt what would you say the percentage is through that 20-year period that a it was a cold front b it was a, a full moon period within 10 days of the full or within five either side or seven uh, man side. i would think it'd be like uh, 85 plus it's, it's really high i know that it's really really high I was I was going to guess 85 to 90 percent out of all of those bucks that we're talking about. You know, if I could preempt this and say if there was a way to to have unlimited funding, Bronson, if there was unlimited funding and we could collar some of these deer that we're talking about and go to a five minute increment or a five minute interval on the data points and not not be concerned about battery life and do it over that four month period or five month period you know, where we could collar 20 or 30 or 40 of these deer, it would be intriguing or interesting to see how those data points aligned with the data points that you currently have on a 15 minute interval. Hmm. Yeah, sure. yeah, that, that, that would help a lot. And, and that could address some of those little details about it showing up in, in dusk and seeing the buck and getting a shot versus 10 minutes later in it's dark. That, absolutely. And, yeah. and even some of those midday points, you know, we kill a lot of deer between 10 and two, you know, there's, it's a sharp window, but there are those periods throughout the rut where 10 to two is, is pretty magical. And a lot of guys can vouch for that. It might be noon, might be 11, might be one. Uh, those are rare occasions because most guys aren't sitting there at, between 10 and two They're, You know, they may grow, grab lunch or something, but, uh, we have those opportunities as well. So it would, all of those little subtleties would be kind of cool to find out. Yeah. And, and our data show that as well. So, so when I, when I talk about that, the peak movements are centered on sun up and sundown, that, that is not to say that there aren't bucks moving at, at night in the middle of the night. And it's not to say they're not moving some during the day. It's, it's just the relative amount of distance yeah. covered is usually sure. sun up sundown but yeah I, I, i've shot deer at 11 noon one o'clock yeah. as well I, I like the fact that you wanted to see when the guy was sitting out there he didn't kill the deer but he saw the deer i also like knowing the data when he was sitting out there and never saw a deer I, uh, i'm with you i think those are important important items as far as determining these 13 influencers that we use 
I would, which we try to disprove this thing on a, on a daily basis. When it says bad and don't go, we still go. And we try to prove it wrong. And, and 99 out of 100 times, it proves us wrong. But I would love to take it one step further, just like you said, and, and say the days that he saw it but didn't kill it, you know, right. when that dude's up I, on their feet. I assume. One of the, oh, go ahead. One of the most intriguing things to me as, as we've studied this is the effect of cloud cover on movement as it, as it varies by, by month. In other words, we're getting ready to open the Missouri season in September, and they've been hot all summer. All of a sudden, you get a little cool front in. It's cloudy, and the deer are going to move very well on those cloudy days. If you take that same cloud cover, the amount of cloud cover, it disregard temperature, and place it in December, it will have the reverse effect on overall daylight activity i will i will bet the farm on it like in december they are literally the kiss of death if they roll in your deer movement is going to be very suppressed they're going to move, move quite late however if the sun shines all day they're going to move so much earlier and i i assume it has to do with the thermal units and um th that's the only thing i can come up with in december when they're trying to conserve energy versus in september when they're when they're trying to consume as much as they can as they head into the rut do you have you ever looked at that or do you have any theories as to why you think it varies sunny days early season can sometimes subdue movement whereas in december it enhances movement and vice versa cloudy days early i see a lot of a lot of deer in september however in december it su suppresses movement um i i haven't looked uh particularly at that but i, I would say the biological reason if something were to come out of it i, I would my hypothesis would be that deer try to live in what we call their thermoneutral zone. The thermoneutral zone is basically they're not having to expend an inordinate amount of activity to either, they don't have to work hard to stay cool, they don't have to work hard to stay warm. And so the scenario you're describing is there that you have uh, the, the context is that it's hot and the clouds are decreasing the temp a little bit, so they're more in that thermoneutral zone versus backing it up in December, the sun is warming that up. The clouds are out, the sun is maybe warming it up. And mm -hmm. so they're still in that- In that so, zone. In that See, zone. There's blue collar, you know, and science right there together. It's just observation versus why, and you just answered it right there. That's beautiful, thank you. Makes sense too. I would think, you know, we talking about the research side of it, and I would think you'd have to know, you'd have to have guys that were hunting like Mark and Terry every single day to, to and almost document, well, you would have to document every single day versus when we, when there's a cold front and we have a bunch of team members out there, the odds are going to be better. Now, I would think when there's the, the conditions aren't optimal, and if we sent the same group of guys out there and we took down all the encounters that they may have had, I would think you'd see way less. You know, that's kind of the whole point yeah. of what, what Mark and Terry came up with with the algorithm is trying to optimize your days. But I, I guess for your research and, and for that purpose of it, you'd have to have um, some times where it's not optimal days and you have the same amount of people going out to hunt. And, and then you'd collect that data to see just what effect the full moon and cold fronts really did have on it, if any, right? 
Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. So you've got to have a lot of hunters out there. You need a lot of reps, you know, a lot of people. You need to collect a lot of data. So you got to, and the best way to do this, and y'all aren't going to like it whatsoever. Scientifically, the best way to do it is at random. So a random number generator, and you get to hunt this particular day at this particular place. Everything's at random. And then over time, if there's a relationship, you start finding that. But that that protects you by doing it at random. It protects you against bias and that you're kind of going, I'm going to go on the day. It's a little bit better. Or hunt the place where the, you know, uh, greater probability of seeing a deer. Doing it at random would eliminate that. But then also coupled with that is you don't have to worry as much about who gets to hunt. Use trail cameras. Sure. Yep. With the camera, right. run it out out there. That's what that's what we do through most of the season is, you know, we're only hunting one spot, but we've got I've got 250 running right now, you know, but I'm only hunting one spot and we have guests in and that type of stuff. So that's that's where most of our conclusions came from, frankly, because I I want to know unpressured deer movement. I don't want my presence to affect what my overall uh, assessment is of that day. And I think Terry would answer that the same way. Absolutely. Absolutely. The cell cameras truly have changed our level of intrusion, if you will. We were apprehensive about putting cameras in their bedrooms we, because we, we didn't want to walk in there and, and change the card or check the batteries. We, we just there's something about it that was against our nature. We just couldn't make ourselves walk in there, you know, and and push them out of where we thought they were betting. So cell cameras have changed that drastically where now we can collect all the data you know, the you use a lithium battery or set of lithiums and it'll go for a year. And uh, the data for us is is priceless knowing, you know, particularly the, the change that they make from when they're in velvet to when they go hard horn. And that 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 big move that they make seems like they made one move during the summer months just to kind of I call it a walkabout. You know, in July there, you see these big bucks, you know, in spots that you've never had them before. They make their little walkabout and then you don't see them again, you know. And and do we have the cameras in likely spots and do we have them in spots where maybe that deer just happens to not be living? Absolutely. You know, the, the cameras aren't always in the right place. But because of the number of cameras that we have and particularly if we get a spot where we have a big deer that we know we're going to go after, we put more cameras there. So the data that we're collecting instead of two cameras, there might be six or eight cameras in that one little bitty 40 or 50 acre parcel. But with that being said, the cell cameras have changed our data drastically because we, we can put them in spots that we never had them before, or we were, were reluctant to put them because we didn't want to walk in there and, and mess it up. Yeah. They're a game changer, no doubt about it. Yeah, they are. They are a game changer. I've, I've said it since they came out. It, it takes average deer hunters and makes them really really good those cell cams do you know i mean um how do you feel about them personally your personal feeling as it as it in terms of you know hunting um do you use cell cams do you how do you feel about it do you think it's an unfair advantage in any shape way shape or form or i i don't think so and uh of, of course i'll say uh you got to go with what your state wildlife agency and your hunting sure. community is deemed is is good or, or bad or legal or not. Um, of course, any of this, I think it can be you can overdo it to some degree. But but Mark, I, I think it's just individual. 
you know, some people, I mean, I know some people that now that don't even like not just a cell camera, they don't even like a trail camera. Their whole deal is I'm going for the afternoon or morning. I want to be surprised. That's their fulfillment. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Then there's people that are more hardwired like y'all, of course, where you have a goal in mind, you have a target buck, and this is helping you to understand their patterns, their behavior, their timing, and it allows you to do that. But it, it's still not drawing the bow, and it, you know it's still not sending an arrow, so you still have enough to do as a hunter where it's still a tremendous accomplishment. It's just helping you learn more about the biology of the animal. Very good. That's in, a great in a answer. non non invasive way. Yeah, great answer. Awesome. Well, man, this has been so much fun. Yeah, and I, I was going to say for our listeners or viewers want to get more of Bronson, they can subscribe to his podcast, Deer University. He hey, and uh, <clears throat> let me do one little plug. And my uh, my my friend and co director Steve Damaris, uh, he's been on me for the past two months. Is that we, we literally have uh, spent a lot of time taking this most recent study in, in Mississippi and we've put it in a popularized article. So we got the journal publications, all, all that kind of stuff, but we are literally graphically showing all of the stuff we're talking about. So our goal is before deer season, we're gonna have an available online PDF that people can view and download and show all the very things we've been talking about today, the daily distance move, how it varies with the rut, uh, the personalities and home range shifting and daily home range, seasonal, you know, all that stuff, we're gonna have it put together and freely available. And so we'll be announcing that on social media and on our podcast and so forth when it's available. So all of your listeners can download it and view it and let the conversations continue. That's exciting. Very nice. Yeah, well, an open invitation, Bronson, if you want to post that in DeerCast, I'm sure our DeerCasters would love to see that too. Great. And something to note, we should have started out with, this conversation kind of came about because of an article on North American Whitetail, correct? Mm -hmm. what, what was the writer? It was one of our DeerCast writers. Paul did that, yeah. And, and, and I, I think it's not out yet, but okay. it should be out within the next month or so. And Mark was quoted and Dr. Bronson was quoted as well, right? I don't know that that Bronson was quoted, but but the it's possible he was, but more so the research that research they, that they did back in two thousand nine in Oklahoma. Okay, yep. So come, I, coming. I out read in that article. I thought it said that it was in an enclosure. Is that accurate or inaccurate? If if an enclosure was studied, that that was not our study. It, they could have okay. been referencing some other study, but it, it wasn't ours. <clears throat> okay. All right. Did not did it say it was an enclosure, Tim, in that article? I what I read when I I went back and I read the 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 PDF that it mentioned a two strand electrical fence that didn't seem to impede deer movement. That deer were tracked both inside and outside that fence, so it wasn't. It was a fence. Oh but well, it, no, that wouldn't. Okay, that wouldn't that wouldn't impede them at all. Yeah. No. Okay. I've got five strands and I can't keep them out. <laughs> Seriously. I got pictures of them inside. I go, how did they get in there? You know, you hot wired off a food plot and they're inside the, inside the hot wire, uh, eating the leaves off your scrape tree. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's, 
there's that scene from Mission Impossible where Tom Cruise is going through all those lasers. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think the deer have that exactly. same ability. I like the Catherine Zeta-Jones exactly. version better. <laughs> well, I, I, is there anything else that uh, either, you know, any of the three of you guys want to add before we kind of wrap things up? I mean, it's been very informative. We could probably go for hours and hours if, if anybody had the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could go for days. Anything you guys want to add? I do not. I thought it was fascinating. I, I want to thank Dr. Strickland for coming on. That was that was an enjoyable conversation. Well, the, uh, one I thing have, I'd like to add is funding. Funding is seems to be you know a big big issue, which we understand how expensive these studies can be. So uh, I don't know who we have to talk to about getting getting you more funding. You know that would be uh, maybe one of the catalysts here as far as going forward because I think it would be intriguing to to run different tests as far as that collar's concerned and go on smaller increments, smaller time intervals, that five minute interval that you mentioned and not have to be as concerned about battery life where we could do it just over the that, that four or five month period. And then also do another long term with, with in different areas of the country. I think it would be extremely helpful. Big time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really do think that would uh, that would give us the answer. If there's inter any answer to be had, it would be using the the similar methodologies. It would be using your methodology, your technique, what you're seeing, and then literally same place, same time. We're looking at the movement of deer with the GPS collar, and I, I think that's how you slice it up and and find out what's going on. That'd be fun. Yeah. And then I have access to the GPS software on the backside <laughs> just to keep track of things. Sure. You probably would get wrapped into that. <laughs> right. You better be careful what you're wishing for, hey, mister. You got some extra room on your plate. Here you go. <laughs> well, th thank you to everyone for taking the time this morning to have this conversation. It's a great one. I get the feeling that we'll probably have continuations of it down the road. Absolutely. That was great. Cool. All right. All right. Well, Dr. Bronson, thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I, I really enjoyed the conversation, and I may be biased here, but I think we covered a lot of ground. We did. Yeah. Did we just become best friends? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I will put the link to your podcast up in the show notes in case folks want to get more on a regular basis from you, Bronson. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you All right. We appreciate it. I think that okay. wraps it up, Tim. Let's shut her down. All right. Until next time, peace I'll out. See ya. DeerCast is now supercharged with maps. Get ahead of your game with killer new features like live Doppler radar, wind checkout to five days, virtual rain gauges, GPS path tracking, and more. Plus, get our 14-day revolutionary DeerCast prediction and access to DeerCast track. Prep, predict, and pursue with DeerCast.